We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of October 18th, 2021. This is our first 2021-22 off-season podcast which we were hoping this would happen later, like in November. But since the Chicago White Sox bowed out of the American League Division Series, it's time to start reviewing how individual players did during the season, what are the key questions for this upcoming offseason for these players, and expectations in 2022. Those player-centric podcasts will start releasing later this week, starting with Carlos Rodon. That episode will be released on October 21st. This episode, however, is special. We figured if this episode is kicking off the offseason, let's completely empty our mailbag in P.O. Socks and make this a P.O. Socks episode. Joining me is the managing editor of SocksMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hey, Jim, we've got a mountain questions, but... Before we start answering them, how have you spent your week since the uh, White Sox were knocked out of the postseason? I think I'm taking the uh, the CSs off championship series. Like just uh, haven't, you know, between the American League being, you know, kind of Alex Cora versus the Houston Astros, that's not a lot of fun. Uh, Braves versus Dodgers, Tomahawk Chop versus the Dodgers who won it last year. Nothing against them. Just I've seen what they offer and it's fun. Like uh, I, I guess I'm just figure can use a week to uh, uh, decompress after what the White Sox did, figure out what they did, and then kind of reconvene with the baseball season during the World Series. Or, you know, should the uh, ALCS and LCS get to a game six or seven, I'll probably tune back in then. How about hmm. you? Okay. I, I've been keeping an eye uh, on the series themselves. Uh, I was a little befuddled on how well Boston was keeping Houston at bay, uh, especially through the first two games, because I just felt the White Sox had stronger pitching than the Red Sox did. And here the Red Sox are doing a much better job than the White Sox are. 
against Houston's lineup. And of course, we both knew and just how dangerous Boston's lineup was. Boston had a better lineup than the White Sox did this season, in my opinion. And they really showed it in game two, hitting a grand slam in the first and second inning. And uh, a little bit of the Braves-Dodgers, uh, because I was in New Orleans this past weekend uh, for two of my oldest friends finally got married. Uh, Darren and Natalie, they were my first friends when I moved to Chicago uh, that I made, and after being together for 11 years, they decided to get married uh, in New Orleans, which was very fun uh, to go visit the Big Easy. I ate really well. I drank really well. It was a fun time. Uh, so I, I guess the silver line of the White Sox not making it to the championship series is that I did not have any outside distractions from my friend's big day. That's cool. Uh, yeah, it was funny. I was thinking... Uh, as the postseason was getting started, or you know, like I would say, like late September, I was thinking usually I switch to curling around this time of year. Like just uh, when I was up in upstate New York, that um, yeah, I, I ended up watching a lot of postseason games from the curling club. And the White Sox were never involved, so I never had to worry about scheduling conflicts. And I, I thought, like moving to Nashville, I would. Uh, not have that uh, outlet after the season, but turns out um, that Nashville now has a curling bar that just opened up, like a real deal curling bar. I was kind of uh, wondering if it was going to be like one of those kind of bar ones that's, you know, it's shorter ice and uh, it's more just kind of a shuffleboard thing for winter sports and, and it's a vague form of it. But no, it's real deal curling. It's uh, it's uh, owned by Mark Bulger, who's on that team of NFL players that are curling competitively. <laughs> And, uh, so I went on opening night and threw some stones. I'm throw throwing some stones with Mark Bulger, <laughs> which was kind of cool. Um, yeah, I, I told him I was very happy to see his place open, but now yeah, Nashville is getting a curling club starting up and, uh, hoping to get involved. So even if I won't be curling as much, you know, right now, because they're still, you know, going through the, you know, figuring out how the, uh, you know, to optimize the ice and getting the club set up the finer points of that league nights and so forth. It's going to be fun to be at the uh, in a curling club's inaugural season, which will be new to me. Well, I got to say, that's a great podcast idea. Curling with Mark Bolger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe for the YouTube uh, <laughs> off-season content. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, nice guy. Um, yeah, very happy to have that bar there, though. It's going to be... It's going to be cool <laughs> and uh, very excited for that. Um, it felt like, uh, did I, did I wish this into existence somehow? Like, was this not a plan and now it's here, but terrific. So yeah, Nashville curling club starting up going to be fun. Well, the, our diehard audience members are probably ecstatic that they get to hear about Jim's curling exploits in the off season. Those will still continue which is terrific yes. news. Mark Hope will be thrilled. <laughs> Mark Hope and me. Uh, oh, we have uh, in, in North Dakota, Chris, I think in North Dakota, he also curls. So we got a couple. Nice. So, But I encourage more people to get involved. Like, it's great. It's a, it, it com uh, I know there is a uh, you know, hashtag, please like my sport when it comes to hockey fans being insecure uh, about this. Uh, you know, just... Yeah, their 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 sport not being favored over basketball and other winter pursuits, but I say uh, please like my sport earnestly. It's a good sport. We should you should create a socks machine curling team, and then we can challenge the other White Sox blogs and podcasts to a curling tournament. Because I have a lot of confidence that you can bring home a cup, Jim, for us. I would be well. I mean. <laughs> 
I think it'd be hard pressed to form one full team with uh, curlers. Uh, well, actually, let me think. You just need four, don't you? Yeah, four. No, we'd have four. Um, assuming they could all be in Chicago at the same time. That's my my. That's my thinking. Is like it'd be hard to get everybody in one place at one time. But yeah, if we, I don't know if you could form two full teams. Could you imagine the from the one hundred eighters curling? <laughs> I think they'd be good at it if they could. Um, you know, one, if they went on the ice without being completely hammered, because I've seen some injuries happen when people do that. Uh, you know, dislocated elbows. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Remember? Yeah. Being uh, that one was particularly grisly, but yeah, just uh, things can happen. So I think you need to be a certain amount. Of, you, you can't save the one awaiting for after. Uh, but I, I think, you know they would seem like they could probably do it because a lot of it's just getting through the learning curve. And I think they're good natured enough to, um, you know, put up with falling down a few times in order to get through. So, yeah, uh, you have a lot more confidence than I do in them. Uh, but yeah, if uh, any of the white Sox blogs and podcasts listening to this, if you want to challenge Jim to a curling tournament, let's get it on and uh, let's get the Sox machine curling team going i think that's a great place to get going for this particular episode again this is the po socks mailbag episode we have all of these questions that have been stored in our mailbag and uh, we've decided to empty out the uh, mailbag because after this podcast jim is going to be answering po socks questions during the off season but in written form for our patreon supporters so if you have gotten used to for you know if you just started listening to the Sox Machine podcast for the 2021 season. We do make some adjustments in the offseason. P.O. Sox would go into written format during the offseason, and we'll bring it back to the podcast for the 2022 season when we get started with the spring training coverage uh, and getting ready for the 2022 season, whenever that may start. Uh, I know that's going to probably be a question that we're going to answer as far as this upcoming offseason and how the structure of the league will go. So, Jim, are you ready to knock these out? Yes, we got a ton. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans, listeners, are taking over we're going to answer all the questions that we have this week, and it looks like we have more than 12 of them. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started, Jim. The first question that we have comes from Kyle Nelson, no, no relation to me. And Kyle wrote to us, I feel like this is the e eternal question for the Chicago White Sox in the offseason. What would you categorize as the biggest need going into 2022? Right field, second base, or starting pitching? I would say in terms of on-hand talent, that starting pitching would be the biggest need just because with Rodon probably moving on and with uh, Keuchel not knowing what you're going to get from him, uh, really like Kopech is the one player on hand who you could feel okay about giving like a back-of-the-rotation job to for a full season. And then Lopez is there as well, you know, in, 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 you know, with all his warts, uh, still being somebody who can occasionally, you know, throw a good start. So he's in the mix for depth, but behind them, like the Stever Lambert tier kind of, fl uh, flamed out this year, at least didn't show what they needed to show to feel good about them, uh, taking over a spot for the bulk of 2022 and Cade McClure is interesting as well, but he's somebody who's more of like an audition 
type guy versus somebody you feel okay about handling a job for a month or two. So that seems to me like they would need to add somebody. But I think like spiritually, right field is the biggest one to me just because it keeps being the problem. And it also keeps being um, kind of symbolic of the White Sox struggles in free agency and player acquisition in which they keep trying to cut corners uh, and, and spend as little as possible to get by. And it turns out to be disastrous, like going from John Jay to Nomar Mazzara to Adam Eaton, uh, you know, not great. Just, you know, they spend like four to five to seven million and none of it works. Like there's no material difference in how successful they are while they've seen like Bryce Harper and George Springer and whatnot contribute elsewhere and, and be the kind of players they need, uh, you know, because they just didn't want to pay the price. So it feels like, uh, right field is almost like the final boss for Rakan and, and just like, uh, uh, I think especially since when you, when you factor last year and that they, they went all out for a closer and uh, turns out that the closer never factored into it. even the eighth inning guy they acquired at the deadline never really factored into the postseason at all uh, in a meaningful way because they just needed players who could set up the game well over the first seven innings and they didn't do it. So I think when it comes to like everyday players who can help the lineup, um, you know, be a threat to post five runs a game, even against good pitching in the postseason, right field, I think would be the, the, the bigger uh, just position slash easiest way to help shape the offense into something that doesn't sputter as much. I agree with you about right field, especially because you mentioned that you haven't been watching the championship series. Have you been noticing how well Jock Peterson has been hitting this postseason? Oh, yes, because he was my choice for right field among the second tier guys who weren't George Springer. And Kyle Schwarber, we talked about this. He had a terrific season. And I just go back to that column I wrote last year regarding all the left-handed right field options that were available for the White Sox. And I didn't include Adam Eaton because that was a terrible idea. And we first guessed that it was a terrible idea. And he had a good two weeks in April. And then eventually they cut him loose and here we are again, and you, this grinds my gears because you are absolutely right, Jim. They keep throwing, you know, five, seven million dollars, which in the grand scheme of things in baseball is not a lot of money to a player. It's not. But to the White Sox, who are so budget conscious, that signing could prevent an upgrade elsewhere. And dear Lord, they have been lighting money on fire, Jim, with these right field solutions. Like, you get more enjoyment watching $7 million burn than watching Adam Eaton try play baseball hmm. uh, this past season. <laughs> I'm giving that thought. And even the Angels who picked him up, yeah. uh, the Angels caught him. What was it, like a month that they had him before they let him go? So, it, yeah, they... They got to do better because the current strategy of how they're addressing right field is not good enough. But you did mention as far as the internal options and with right field, I just get the same feeling with like starting pitching that well, if Rodon signs elsewhere, it's plug and play. Michael Kopech gets insert, uh, inserted into the starting rotation. Uh, if they don't like anyone in free agency or a trade in right field, then I feel like they're just going to roll with Gavin Sheets or Andrew Vaughn in right field. 
Yeah, and Adam Engel's there too. I think, you know, it's really unfortunate that, that Engel spent so much of the year hurt um, just because this would have been a nice year for him to showcase his abilities and how much the White Sox could bank on him. But yeah, mm-hmm. that, that it, it's, you know, unfortunately we don't have that answer and we don't know, like, you know, is this going to be a recurring issue? How much is, you know, uh, of Andrew Vaughn's production was rookie, uh, you know, rookie struggles or was it the, the back injury being... Uh, worse than they let on or being, you know, perhaps something where he didn't really just, he thought he could play through it and he couldn't. Um, That's hard to tell. So, you know, there are a lot of questions with the internal options to where if they wanted to go bold and try somebody new in right field, if if they felt like this is the year to spend money and go for it and solve the problem once and for all, uh, they can, you know, they can reallocate some resources elsewhere that they might have, you know, uh, for right field with between sheets and Vaughn, you know, there's a DH there. Um, there's left fielder there. If you want to rotate Jimenez out, uh, there are other things they can do like, but it gets back to like the idea of more bats than spots. Like I think if they enter the season, like blocking one of Vaughn or sheets, um, that'll be the kind of um, situation they didn't try to create for themselves last winter when they, they should have like, you know, having Andrew Vaughn as a plan a for DH, I thought was really questionable like just um why <laughs> like uh yeah i understand the the concern about blocking him but like with a one-year contract you know like the one Carl, kyle schwarber got or the one jock peterson got like just uh it struck me as just kind of foolish to have him as the uh you know the first dh option just because turns out they needed him in left field because uh Eloy got hurt during spring training and all of a sudden the uh, instead of having like Vaughn as an emergency uh, bat that they could access in the case of something like a Mendes injury, now all of a sudden he was needed for defense as well as offense. And then they need another bat first guy for DH. And fortunately Mercedes came in and, and was that guy for at least April to calm things down. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, they, they kind of went through all their internal options this year for trying to find the sustainable guy. Sheets looks like he might be one of them, but it's still, tough to find that other you know second or third bat behind him who you might feel good about over the course of a six-month season being an above average contributor like I think Vaughn can be average but it's still hard to know just you know given his unusual track record for minor league you know reps and such we don't have really a, a robust history of how he fares over the course of a five-month season against certain pitchers and certain handedness there was still a little bit of guesswork with him there is the Oscar Colas which is going to be a popular name we're going to hear a lot about when the international signing, if the international signing happens in January. Uh, I'm I'm still expecting it will be, but if there's a lockout, it could delay it. Uh, that could be a possibility for the White Sox at right field. We'll have to wait and see. I, I still think that's pretty risky for the White Sox. But, but Kyle, yeah, right field is just this lingering question it was like third base as well for the White Sox for like a decade after Joe Creedy and the White Sox addressed it with Todd Frazier for like a season and a half and bless Yohan Makata making the move from second to third base and locking down that position defensively uh, and still being productive offensively that we don't have to worry about third base anymore. But here we are again, Jim. We've been podcasting about the White Sox for eight seasons. It's going to be our ninth season in 2022 and we are still talking about what are the white Sox going to do in right field 
Yep. Oh, man. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mohammed, and Mohammed wrote to us, should the White Sox do wholesale changes to the rotation after the showing in the postseason, or should they stay the course, i.e. trying to offload Dallas Keuchel and replace him with the free agent? And should Michael Kopech be in the rotation next season? I think, uh, you know, to kind of follow up on the you know, first question, just I think staying the course is more or less there. I mean, Lynn is under, uh, you know, a contract extension, just getting started for two more years. And Giolito's there. Like, Cease grew a lot. So, yeah, there's really nothing to be done for the rotation this year, aside from figure out the fifth spot. And then, yeah, Keuchel, I, I think they would love to offload him. I'm not counting on that happening for anything like, you know, anything meaningful. Um, and, and I still think the White Sox, you know, most likely outcome is that they go into the next season treating him as like post-surgery John Danks and hoping he can be a fifth starter and somebody who you know, helps cross the day off the calendar. And if not, um, you know, then that's where I guess like maybe, uh, you know, Kopech takes over or just like just somehow um, arrange it to where you help uh, manage Kopech's workload with him and then allow the you know, uh, transition to take over if Kopech somehow doesn't look ready or if they need a uh, they need somebody else besides Kopech for um, the opening day uh, rotation just because of injury. But I think the, the, the one thing that's kind of tough with the rotation as is with Kopech coming in, and we've seen this with previous winters, is that it makes it hard for a decent starting pitcher to feel good about his chances of getting starts for the White Sox, like if they have a pretty stout rotation. So that's why they're in this weird spot right now where they have five good starting options, but they don't have a whole lot behind them. And you know, how do you supplement that if you're, besides crossing your fingers that Stever or Lambert or McClure will be able to uh, fill in what they've been missing and be those guys uh, for the seventh and eighth starters over the course of the season. But I think this will be a good test for Ethan Katz, just finding out um, just whether he can identify guys, whether the White Sox front office has a better idea of just their, I guess, what their pitching apparatus can do and, and what kind of pitches they can help improve or what kind of arsenals they can help reorganize to be more effective. Because I think it's going to take one of those a Rodon-like signing, um, except you know, with Rodon, they they knew him and they knew uh, you know what they wanted to do, and they knew like I guess his health and knew you know I guess had a better idea of what was behind that velocity jump last year to know whether it was sustainable. Um, but if if Rodon moves on, then they're going to need to find somebody external who fills that same uh, niche in the roster, providing. 15 to 20 good starts, uh, if needed. Um, the White Sox tried, you know, you know, late in the Don Cooper era with guys like, you know, Miguel Gonzalez and Gio Gonzalez and just never really worked. They didn't have the stuff to handle. Ivan Nova really didn't work out. Um, he was okay, but just not great. So when they're, you know, talking about, you know, trying to, uh, you know, maybe pick a guy up and, and polish him up and try to, uh, you know, get, uh, more than they paid for him. I, I think you know, having Ethan Katz there, it's worth seeing what uh, they do in the winter. You know, that's a case where now that they've changed enough there to where if they go bargain hunting for a pitcher, I'll be more open-minded than say like the White Sox going bargain hunting for right field. Well, Mohammed, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mo Sox. And Mo Sox wrote to us during the playoff series, the Chicago White Sox starting pitching was not sharp, as everyone knows. 
My question is about fatigue. Lucas Giolito especially looked tired to me. I understand that playoff pitching is at another level of intensity, but do you think fatigue was a factor? Does Tony La Russa leave his pitchers in during regular season games longer than other managers? He did. Um, with the injury issues that uh, flared up over the course of the last two months season, he backed off. But what's interesting is that the White Sox had uh, they were they were second in baseball with 45 starts of 110 pitches or more, uh, and, and only the Reds were ahead of them with 46. Um, Toronto was next in the American League at 34, but all of those starts, or at least the bulk of them, like the the vast majority of them, came before mid-August. After mid-August, uh, last like six weeks of the season, only four starts at 110 pitches or more. Even like 100 pitches was pretty rare to come by in September, aside from like the last tune-ups for. Um, yeah, last, I guess last full tune-ups for Lynn and Giolito, and they were fine, like six innings, 100 pitches, uh, that sort of thing. So Larusa did back off, and he did, um, you know, he, he did take the, uh, I guess, the potential fragility of the rotation or the uh, potential, you know, a threat of a, uh, with them wearing down to hearts, and he did change his habits pretty dramatically. But I think it is worth wondering or considering or, or factoring into next year just whether, you know, that 110 plus pitches habit that in the first half was a good idea. Part of that is the White Sox rotation was so good that, you know, they're naturally going to have starts of 110 plus pitches if they're throwing six, seven innings with regularity more than other teams. So it's not necessarily a bad stat on its face, but there were a number of starts where, you know, you did wonder, you know, if the White Sox are going to pay for this later. And it is possible. I think with the fatigue thing in the postseason, I think it's more of a matter of the Astros lineup being good and so many pitchers with the White Sox struggling to throw breaking balls for strikes or at least convincing balls. Just they didn't have command of those pitches. And within the case of Lynn, like he doesn't really have that kind of traditional slider um, to get, uh, you know, hitters off it with a different velocity range and a different, uh, you know, whole different kind of tilt. So, you know, that, that might've been a bad matchup too, based on his previous experiences against the Astros. But, you know, that's my guess is that, you know, you had, you know, Giolito having a bad control game, Lynn uh, having his usual struggles with the Astros, Cease having his bad control inning, uh, his bad mechanics inning and not being able to get out of it. And then Rodon being injured. So uh, I think of those four, like Rodon is the one where, you know, fatigue was probably the biggest, uh, culprit, but then again, you know, with his injury history, like you couldn't necessarily count on him getting into October and in pitching shape anyway. So it's kind of a minor miracle. He was able to make a postseason start as is. So, uh, I wouldn't say the performance against the Astros was fatigue based, but it is worth monitoring next year. Just whether they changed that habit at all. Well, Mo Sox, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Scott Milburn. And Scott wrote to us, we really didn't hear much about pitching substances of late. I'd be curious to see if the data were to suggest that the White Sox were truly benefactors of this before the crackdown. Uh, I've been following it over the course of the season, especially you know when Cease and Giolito had big drops and Lynn had a lesser one, but still a little bit noticeable. Um, but as the starts went on and I looked at the um, baseball savant game data, after every start, I noticed the numbers starting to tick up a little bit, still below like the season averages, but on the way up. And 
and the range being, um, I think it was like 115 RPM was the uh, standard deviation to where like greater than was meaningful. Like it started slipping below that uh, one standard deviation to where like, it didn't seem like a story anymore. And you know, I, I'd kind of forgotten about it myself after a while, or just didn't think of any reason to write about it. And uh, sure enough, in baseball prospectus, there's a good article by Rob Arthur um, talking about the crackdown and the limited effects. And sure enough, uh, spin rates basically came back, not all the way, but close enough to be within that standard deviation to where, um, you know, the, the game is still effectively the same and pitchers are still pitching as they were with the same, you know, arsenals and methodology and such. His thought, like, you know, he didn't have a great answer for why, but he just thought that maybe pitchers found a way around it with old-fashioned means, you know, just kind of sunscreen, rosin, pine tar, maybe doing stuff between innings, but not like, you know, kind of loading up their glove like Karinczyk did or, you know, anything else on caps, you know, what have you, just uh, calming it down a little bit. And then like, you know, getting rid of spider tech, like the, the, the you know, just the really um, over-the-top foreign substances that, you know, lab showed added, you know, crazy, uh, velocity to spin ratios that, uh, are, are nuts. So it seemed like it was, you know, if major league baseball intended on just getting rid of that, getting rid of like the, um, excessive ones, the ones that just, you know, show no end to the arms race and, and, and um, you know, just, you know, lead to this three true outcomes of strikeouts and homers. And, and then, you know, walks, perhaps walks are dropping too. Like it would seem like, um, mission accomplished then and at least for now it's kind of reached this compromise to where sticky stuff is still being used but it's more of a you know ordinary kind you know maybe back three years ago to where uh you know, they they weren't um really gooping it up but if they want to change the game still and reduce spin and and uh you know, try to make it more standard um, then it seems like there's still a ways to go, or maybe they have to, you know, think about attackier baseball naturally to where, um, you know, there's, it, it's more or less, um, you know, the league encourages a certain amount and, uh, they're able to more, I guess, strictly police anything they do to load up after that. But, uh, right now it seems like not really a story anymore because spin rates came back basically, uh, close to all the way. Yeah. You mentioned the attacky baseball, the Japan uses that baseball mm-hmm. and they use that baseball during the summer Olympics. So you had a lot of pitchers for team USA commenting on how much they liked that baseball. And if you're going to crack down on using substances as grip enhancers, let's call it that for pitchers in both minor in the minor leagues in, in America and the major leagues, that major league baseball should follow the path that Japan is doing and having some type of tacky substance already on the baseball to have pitchers have a stronger grip. Would you be in favor of that, Jim, if they make another ball change? Yeah, I guess that's the, I guess now would be the time given how um, irregular the ball has played year after year that it may as well. This would be, you haven't uh, reached a kind of uh, uh, any kind of um, status quo when it comes to how the baseball plays. So now would be the time, but I haven't seen really anybody complain about it. I guess I haven't heard the hitters perspectives, but I guess hitters would probably be fine with it over spider tech, you know, the days of that. So um, I'm encouraged by it, or it seems like something worth trying. Well, our next question in the mailbag comes from 670 WMAQ, the elder. 
And they wrote to us, Jim, Major League Baseball trade rumors listed free agent corner outfielders. It is an unremarkable list of mediocre and over 30-year-olds, except for Nicholas Castellanos and Michael Conforto. The former is going to be really expensive and will demand a multi-year contract at 30 years old. The latter, according to MLB trade rumors, is going to have a qualifying offer placed. What about sending Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets to Glendale on December 1st and teaching them both to play right field with two weeks off for Christmas? I think both have earned the chance to start at right field, maybe Gavin Sheets more than Andrew Vaughn, but the White Sox need pitching badly. Wouldn't it make more sense to invest Jerry Reinsdorf's money there than in right field? I don't think it's a matter of reps. Uh, Sheets got a lot of reps in right field for Charlotte. I think it's just more of a matter of foot speed. Um, you know, both uh, Vaughn and uh, Sheets are well below average in terms of sprint speed. Um, and, and they're plotters, basically. So you're, they're not going to cover a whole lot of ground. And when it comes to right field defense, like you can get by with, you know, poor right field defense. If you're, if you hit like Castellanos, um, he's somebody who the you know, teams are happy to live with what he does out there because he's so good at hitting and they know they're going to get like a well above average bat That's going to be able to hide the, uh, that glove or at least make up for it. And I think with sheets and Vaughn, if you put them in right field and, you know, like Vaughn in left field, he was ultimately fine. Um, and left, uh, didn't cover a lot of ground, but just more or less, made the most of the steps that he, he took. And I imagine if you put him in right field, it'd be more of the same. It's just more a matter of when the ball gets by the right fielders, those, uh, you know, doubles become triples, um, you know, runners score from first, uh, you know, they, they go from first to third more aggressively. They go, uh, you know, first to home more aggressively. So that's where that lack of foot speed and being able to cut off balls in the alley hurts. So if they're going to play in right field and like be the starting option there, you have to feel good about their bats being able to carry their gloves the way that Castellanos does. And I, I don't think they're quite there yet. It seems like if they had like, uh, yeah, I'm just thinking like, say if Castellanos was a White Sox and he's going in his contract year, I think, you know, perhaps it's a case where um, you see how Vaughn and Sheets hit in a full season in 2022. And then like when right field opens up, if Vaughn and Sheets are an above average combination or one of them is a, a very, very good hitter, uh, they, they've uh, maxed out their, their, their hitting ceiling, then I think that's a case where you can move them over. But I think if you shift over you know, one of the other players uh, to cover a position they haven't played in a, in a position like their foot speed suggests they're not going to be good at or even like you know, they're not a great bet to even be average at, You'd have to feel a lot better about their bats and have a lot better idea of how their bats are sustained over the course of a six-month season. And that's why I wouldn't be so enthused about the idea if it actually came to fruition. I, I wouldn't necessarily write it off, and I think it's a better use of plate appearances and at bats and games than like Adam Eaton was, but that's really clearing a pretty low bar. Well, thank you so much, WMAQ The Elder, for your question. We have more questions to answer after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, let's keep answering the questions from the mailbag. Our next question comes from Kevin Shannon. And Kevin wrote to us, Jim, some debate this week on White Sox Twitter over trading either Aloy Jimenez or Andrew Vaughn. What are your thoughts about trading from the 25-man roster to fix the 25-man roster? Also, do you think 2021 helped or hurt Aloy's or Vaughn's respective trade value? Well, yeah, I guess you can think maybe me for that and Penals for that, talking about uh, you know, trading Jimenez and, and Vaughn. Um, I guess the way I would describe her, I thought of like a good player to talk about like a Jimenez Vaughn trade. And that's like, say Brian Reynolds on Pittsburgh, um, you know, switch hitter can play center field under uh, team control for four more years is a super two. So his arbitration trajectory is going to, um, you know, if he keeps playing at the level he's playing at uh, should shoot up, pretty substantially over the course of four years to where it may be out of Pittsburgh's range. You know, Eloy has that, uh, you know, has that contract uh, extension that takes care of that, protects a team from that kind of substantial uh, trajectory for arbitration raises. And Vaughn is still not there yet. He still has five years of team control. So if you traded a, you know, like Jimenez or Vaughn, you know, basically one-on-one, you know, you know, one for one for, Brian Reynolds, who is a switch hitter, can cover center, uh, a ground ball or a fly, yeah, ground ball rate of under 40%. Would you do that? And, you know, I think, you know, I'd have to look into it a bit more, but I, I think that it's pretty fair or close to it. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where all of a sudden now you have a lefty where you had a righty and you have a fly ball hitter where you have a ground ball hitter and you have a guy who can cover center versus a guy who's barely passable and left. And I think that's, that's the kind of deal I'm talking about when it comes to trading a, a Jimenez or Vaughn uh, to where you can change the complexion of the uh, the White Sox lineup rather dramatically, and it's giving something to get something. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. I'm not sure if you have any kind of initial reactions to the idea of Reynolds, but that's what I'm thinking about when talking about trading one of those two guys. I like Reynolds a lot. Out of the two, I am more willing to trade Andrew Vaughn than Aloy Jimenez because... Aloy, I believe, will get into that untapped power potential that we have seen mm-hmm. before, and I do think that he is someone that could hit 50 home runs in a season. You could check when I was writing about Andrew Vaughn leading up to the draft when the White Sox took Andrew Vaughn. I wrote a column pretty much comparing Andrew Vaughn to his ceiling is Paul Konerko which for White Sox fans, you get super excited about because Paul Konerko had a very good career and maybe had one of the greatest moments in White Sox history with his Grand Slam in Game 2 
of the 2005 World Series. White Sox won a world championship with Paul Konerko. However, there's this uber-talented high school position player named C.J. Abrams who unfortunately suffered a pretty devastating injury this year that knocked him out of the season. But as I kept reading about how C.J. Abrams was being developed, uh, C.J. Abrams has a much higher ceiling than Andrew Vaughn does. And I just... I just feel like with Andrew Vaughn, he's just another redundant resource the White Sox have. Mm -hmm. And if it's between these two, for me, you're trading Andrew Vaughn. Because I don't see Andrew Vaughn outslugging Aloy Jimenez. And you've already committed to Eloy Jimenez in multiple ways that he is part of your foundation for this championship contending window. Whereas things are a little complicated with Andrew Vaughn now because if you're looking for a first baseman to replace Jose Abreu, well, this guy named Gavin Sheets came out of nowhere this season and uh, he hits for power and he hits (laughs) left-handed. So... Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like out of these two, it's Andrew Vaughn that you, I feel the White Sox should be more willing to move than Aloy Jimenez. And if Pittsburgh called up Rick Hahn and said, hey, listen, we'll trade Reynolds for some type of package that Andrew Vaughn is the headliner. I do think you have to listen if you are the White Sox. Uh, I, I know then you are spending another high draft pick. You already shipped out your number four pick overall. Nick Magical to the Chicago Cubs for a rental reliever. And now you're trading your number third pick overall uh, for somebody else in another organization. But this topic is, it, it fascinates me because there's a part of me that's like, this is mm-hmm. way too soon to be having this conversation but it does harken back, and I'm not trying to say it's the same exact deal. But this is exactly how I felt before the 2005 season when the White Sox traded Carlos Lee for Scott Pesednik. And you have to understand, I was living in Wisconsin. I was going to college in Wisconsin at that time. I knew a lot about Scott Pesednik, watching and covering the Milwaukee Brewers. And when that trade happened... I was a little dumbfounded because Carlos Lee is a really good hitter, someone that's going to hit 30-plus home runs and have more than 100 RBIs, and Scott Pesednik is not that guy. Uh, So why did the White Sox make that trade? And I feel like, Jim, no matter what kind of trade situation you want to create, whoever wants to drop an Andrew Vaughn or Eloy Jimenez hypothetical trade this offseason – I feel like I'm going to be inserted right back into that situation 16 years ago, wondering why would the White Sox do this? But they have done it in the past, and they just recently did it this past July, trading Nick Madrigal. And that's where no one can say, oh, there's no way they would trade Aloy Jimenez or Andrew Vaughn. They totally could trade either Mm -hmm. of those guys because they've already traded what we thought was going to be the everyday second baseman for the White Sox during this championship contending window. 
Yeah, I, I, you mentioned Pizetnik when you were like sharing my idea and then people were saying like, I'm not trading for Scott Pizetnik. I'm like, no. <laughs> no, that's not what I was yeah, trying to get I, at. Yeah, it, just uh, I had to you know, clarify that, you know, basically with the Pizetnik trade, they got one playable year out of him and it just happened to be the year they won the World Series. So all was forgiven. It didn't matter what Lee did afterwards because Pods uh, had a walk-off homer in the World Series. So uh, yeah, that's like the 100th percentile of trade outcomes for that particular deal. So yeah, that, that's, uh, you can't count on that happening again. But that's why I think Brian Reynolds is just a good placeholder uh, for any kind of just theoretical discussion. It's just if you can get, you know, you're trading somebody of value to get somebody of value who will be around for years and just does things differently than the rest of your lineup. And it's an opportunity to do that. Like that's, that's kind of how I look at it. So if you're thinking about this trade, think about Brian Reynolds and players like him versus uh, Scott Pitsednik. Yeah, we look at baseball and everybody who writes, analyzes, works for Major League Baseball, the guys that make these decisions now in Major League Baseball, they don't operate like they did back in 2005. Mm-hmm. We would, I do not believe we would see another Carlos Lee for Scott Pesetnik trade with the team initiating that trade thinking Scott Pesetnik is our leadoff hitter. Uh, And we traded Carlos Lee to get a leadoff hitter. Nobody thinks like that anymore in baseball. So I don't think we would see that same type of trade. I was just using that as an example of the White Sox have traded someone they have depended to be a middle of the order bat before they could do it again. They, they definitely could do it again. So Kevin, uh, we'll see. (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rule it out. I don't think it's going to be part of my off season plan, but I can't wait when the Sox machine off season plans get started, uh, to see what other white Sox fans think about the possibility of trading either Andrew Vaughn or Aloy Jimenez. Our next question comes from Andrew Siegel and Andrew wrote to us, Jim. I know Jim has talked a lot about how he values the regular season and winning the division, what is your take on a league championship series that features wild cards from both leagues? I think it reinforces, you know, I guess my mindsets in terms of trying to compartmentalize uh, the value or the enjoyment of winning the division and then the uh, enjoyment or frustrations, what have you, of what happens in the postseason. Because, like, I'm thinking of the San Francisco Giants who – had like, you know, a, a season to remember, like just their, their, you know, basically day in, day out duel, especially during the second half with the uh, Dodgers who threw everything they could at them and couldn't, you know, the Giants simply didn't allow them to gain ground. Um, that was, that was cool as hell. Like, and the fact that they lost in the you know, five game series and, you know, another close series, like just um, those two teams could not be closer. And the fact that, you know, the, um, with the, with the five-game series going the Dodgers' way after the regular season went the Giants' way, you basically had, you know, 167 games and nothing was decided still. Like, that's cool as hell. Uh, that's something I really like about baseball that you don't, you know, see really in any other sports. Like, it doesn't matter, like in basketball, if a you know, Eastern Conference team finishes one or two, really. Like, you don't really hear about that. Uh, the way you hear about like pennant races and division races in baseball. And I really, I, I, you know, I treasure that. I value that. It's a big part of what makes the sport cool and, and distinct. And um, when you get to the tournament format of the postseason, just 
so much weird stuff can happen. You can have a bad matchup that you don't like four or five games uh, that just, you know, puts a team against the ropes when they shouldn't be, when they prove their medal over the course of 162 games. So that's why, you know, I try not to, you know, and, and also I should say the White Sox make this easy by so seldomly making the postseason to where it's, you know, never even a factor and you have to enjoy the regular season because that's all you get. But that's more or less how, you know, they've trained me to enjoy baseball is just following the season. And then uh, when it gets to October, just see what happens. But it strikes me as silly to, you know, I guess put all your emotional eggs in the October baskets because, you know, a bad week can go wrong. And then like if, if a bad week can sink your season, make it worthless, then what do you spend the six months doing? So that's why I just compartmentalize. I enjoy the regular season for what it is. I enjoy the tension and drama and like the stakes of the postseason, but I, I kind of treat them as two different things. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark. And Mark wrote to us, now that the season is over, can we revisit a question which came up sporadically during the season? What impact, if any, did bench coach Miguel Cairo have on the team? Well, he did get ejected from that game where Abreu got hit (laughs) in Detroit. So there's that. He managed the Field of Dreams game and the White Sox won. So he got some some reps, but it did seem like once Jerry Naren came aboard, it was like a trainee year for Cairo being in the dugout after being more of like a, you know, instructional guy, front office guy, roving type instructor. Um, but then again, like, I think it's a bit unfair to Cairo just because in the zoom era of, you know, media conferences and not having clubhouse access and not having just the opportunity for idle chit chat with uh, guys who are available um, getting to know what they do or seeing them like on the field and then asking about it afterwards. Like there isn't the opportunity to know the secondary coaches the way you might've before. And I'm thinking like, you know, uh, when it comes to like, you know, the assistant hitting coach, like Howie Clark, do we hear his name at all? Not really. So it's just, uh, when it comes to once Jerry Naren came aboard and, and basically took over the bench coach role, uh, even though, you know, Cairo was the bench coach in name, um, it struck me as a case where he was more or less going along for the ride. Um, you know, and perhaps he's somebody still the White Sox see is worth investing a future in and having the, having them aboard to soak it in. But you know, between him and Shelly Duncan, we really didn't hear much of those guys, uh, those guys. And that's whether, you know, perhaps that's Larusa just being so distinct a presence in a dugout in a clubhouse, <laughs> given his track record, that's, you know, Coaches you don't know, coaches with no experience, knew the job, just aren't going to get the attention, especially from a distance when you can't uh, just go up to them and talk to them and just ask what they're doing or ask other coaches about what those coaches are doing or ask players who aren't the star of the day what those coaches do. That's, I think, uh, one of the things we're losing here with when, when reporters have to c- cover the team from a distance. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your question. We got another question from another Mark. This is from Mark Sambor. And Mark wrote to us, from a White Sox perspective, what are you watching for with the Chicago Bears' potential move to Arlington Heights? Well, this might be a better question for you because you're a Chicago resident and all, but I I think, to me, given how distinct football is from baseball and being 16 games on weekends, appointments, like the Bears were able to play a season in Champaign. Like the White Sox could not play in Champaign. (laughs) Like that, that wouldn't work. So just football is a unique um, the schedule and, and, and just being such an event and people plan their Sundays around it for 
decades for lifetimes that you can't really compare it to baseball uh, just when it comes to stadiums and location. I think the biggest takeaway for me is just how people will uh, handle um, a major Chicago sports team playing outside the city limits. Like what effect that has on their identity. I don't think it'll be much, but just it's never happened. And, you know, um, given how unhappy people are soldier field, just like any, anything besides soldier field is worth, you know, if it, if it takes going outside the city limits for it's probably worth doing. Um, I think it's just kind of funny myself because you hear about Chicago residents saying that, uh, you know, making fun of people from the burbs are saying, you can't call yourself from Chicago. If you're not, you know, if you don't live in Chicago, if you live in, you know, Downers Grove, you can't use, uh, say you're from Chicago. And, you know, I roll my eyes because when you're talking to somebody who isn't from Chicago and doesn't really know it, they don't care. Like It's just, it's just a sentence to get over with. Like <laughs> if you say you're from Chicago, because that just comes out easier or you're from the suburbs of Chicago, just it accomplishes the same thing. As long as you're not saying like, I'm from Chicago, I'm from the neighborhoods. And then you're not like, you know, my neighborhood is Naperville. Like, yeah, as long as you're not saying that, as long as you know, if you're using Chicago as like a ge- you know, geographical uh, reference point, like, it's fine, but you hear people take such offense to that that uh, now all of a sudden, when you have a team you know playing in Arlington Heights, theoretically, um, can they call themselves from Chicago if they play in Arlington Heights if they don't live there anymore? They move to the suburbs. Uh, you know, people are going to say, yeah, because they're Chicago Bears. But just uh, hopefully that'll open up the uh, the ability to say you're from Chicago, or or just people uh, have less of a stick up their butts when it comes to saying they're from Chicago and they're from the suburbs, as long as they don't pretend, uh, yeah, they, they don't add like gross, you know, uh, details and fabrications to paint an urban lifestyle. If it's just like a way to get through a sentence, you know, that's, that's not a big deal, but I can't imagine football and baseball being similar enough in terms of drawing crowds, um, to a, a point in the Chicagoland area to where it can have, huge takeaways from the White Sox. I guess maybe public funds would be the one thing that might tell you about what the White Sox can do. Yeah, that that's the that's what I'm going to be interested in because you have you have quite a there's quite a few folks who cover Illinois politics down in Springfield, the capital of Illinois, and they inject themselves into this conversation people talking about sports and this is a sports topic, but it overlaps with politics. So obviously this is everyone's favorite type of conversation to have, especially the public sphere. Will Illinois help the bears build a new mega stadium in Arlington Heights? And we don't know the answer to that question. There are those who cover Illinois politics who will say there's no way Illinois can afford to help the Chicago Bears with a new stadium, with the amount of debt this state currently has. But states find a way. Governments, especially state and local governments, find a way. And I do think a new stadium is going to be built. There is going to be fallout. Uh, Depending on who is the mayor of Chicago, the city of Chicago could sue the Chicago Bears for breaking the lease early uh, at Soldier Field. Um, so you'll have that type of news story hovering around uh, as far as the city and the football team moving out. But there's a lot of folks that look at, okay, well, the Bears are not at Soldier Field anymore. How about we refurbish this stadium and put the White Sox by the lake? 
And I cannot stress on how terrible of an idea that is because logistically getting to that part of Chicago is a pain in the ass no matter where you live, whether it is the suburbs, north side, west side, east side, south side. Unless you live on Roosevelt Avenue off the corner of Michigan Avenue, it is a pain to get to that part of Chicago. So no, <laughs> there should be no baseball stadium built on the lakefront. If the White Sox are going to have a new stadium within the city, and we have had this discussion in past years, it's either going to be across the street where they used to have a stadium because they have plenty of parking space that they can rip up and build a new stadium, or depending on who buys the White Sox uh, in the next decade, maybe the White Sox move to the West Loop and Chicago joins other met big metro areas where they have multiple sports complexes next to each other. And the next White Sox stadium is maybe across the street or uh, just a couple blocks down from the United Center. So then you have the Chicago Bulls and Blackhawks and White Sox all next to each other hanging out in the West Loop of Chicago. But that <laughs> there's so much real estate that's being bought up now in the West Loop, that that even that idea is starting to uh, become difficult to imagine happening. But uh, I, when I hear people try to tie the White Sox into this conversation about the Bears moving to Arlington Heights, Jim, there there are those that support the idea of moving to the lake. And while aesthetically that would be pleasing to watch on television, it would not be great as a fan attending those games. Mark, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Ed Casey. And Ed wrote to us, Jim, when do you each predict that the CBA will get settled? <laughs> oh, God, Ed. Also, what are your biggest wish list items that you would like to see be included in this upcoming CBA? I'll let you start, Jim. Yeah, I, I'm guessing for a date, I don't know, like January 15th. Oh, okay. I That's a good one. It feels like enough for the winter, but also just, yeah, I guess I would still see, be surprised if there's a substantial work stoppage just because we haven't seen the MLBPA really have an appetite for it. Um, but I can see there being a little bit to where they just maybe kick the can down the road on the tough things for another term. But it would strike me as a little bit like, yeah, they might let this linger a little bit and go into January, but still have most of a winter to get jobs done. So... When I see this question, again, I, I do think we're going to enter in some type of lockout. I don't see a new CBA being ratified before the deadline of, of December 1st. January 1st, I think the stories are going to be coming out from both parties that if a new deal does not get done, Major League Baseball is starting to prepare to postpone opening day of the 2022 season which will throw fans and media in a frenzy. Oh my gosh, they're going to start canceling games because of this lockout. So when you say January 15th, that's a really good day, Jim, because that's just a couple weeks after the frenzy. And maybe that puts both parties enough uh, heat on them to work out their differences and get a deal done. And you still have a month to have a whirlwind of activity for all teams to build their rosters for spring training. And you, I think realistically all teams can report 
to spring training on time and you'll be able to start the season on time if you have a new CBA done in January 15th. The only people that are going to be upset are the Ivy Leaguers who will have to really work overtime uh, to get all of these moves done within a month, which typically they have all of November, all of December, and all of January to build a team. And instead of having three months, they got to do it in a month, but I don't care. I think it makes it more entertaining <laughs> as a fan to have a lot of activity all at once, uh, even though it can be a bit overwhelming trying to cover everything. Um, but I, I think that's a good date. I, I think you picked a good date, January 15th. It kind of reminds me of the um, you know, pandemic season 2020 where they waited until the last possible moment before like, you know, perhaps a season at all was going to be jeopardized. And eventually they were able to hammer it out. So I think it is, it will take, you know, perhaps a little bit of delay, a little bit of posturing, um, tough talk on both sides in order to say like, we really don't want to lose games, but I'm, I'm prepared for, you know, potentially games to be lost. I just, we haven't seen like a hard line in a long time from the uh, players association. So to think they might jeopardize games over it after, you know, so close to the 2020 season where they lost a lot of pay anyway, uh, just might be too much to do. So that's why I think the delay just might be a little bit. As for the other part of the question, I think the, the biggest thing I want to see solved is the service time uh, issue. Um, just uh, it's, it's the worst thing in the game. Um, uh, being deprived of your best possible roster because of afraid of starting a, a player's clock. I still think like age-based free agency is the way to go. Kind of like the way they do age-based or that kind of draft-based um, thresholds for putting a player on the 40-man roster, protecting them from the Rule 5 draft for players uh, who are after the age of 18, four years of uh, pro ball. Uh, players younger than 18, it's five years. But after four or five years, they have to be added to the, um, you know, 40-man roster or selected in the Rule 5 draft, potentially. And, you know, some some tough decisions have to be made, but ultimately I don't think anybody really has a problem with that. And it seems to be pretty smooth and understood. And, um, you know, teams act accordingly and there are different strategies for how to handle it. Um, but ultimately it, it goes fine. I think it's, you know, makes a lot of sense for just how, um, you know, it matches development curves for players of that age. So I think you could have a similar setup to where you know, a player becomes a free agent at uh, you know, but somewhere between like the ages of 26 and 28, depending on when they were drafted or you know, what stage they were drafted um, in order to kind of balance the idea of developing a player properly, but also not wasting any time he could be in the majors just because you want to suppress him and, and keep him the, in the organization for as long as possible. That, that strikes me as like the most reasonable outcome, especially since we've seen it work in another fa another facet of the way baseball teams operate. Yeah, that's a great call, Jim. That's also number one on my list. So, Ed, I'll, I'll give I'll give you what I would like to see. In addition to what I would like to see, what other points of contention that I am paying attention to with this upcoming CBA? What I'd like to see is some adjustments made in the Major League Baseball draft in which teams are allowed to trade draft picks. I think both parties need to come to some type of agreement in which we could introduce the trading of draft picks, whether that's in player acquisitions or on draft day to swap draft slots. I'd like to see that. Uh, the contention points that I am 
really interested in seeing and reading about Jim uh, while the conversations are happening. One, postseason expansion because Major League Baseball sold ESPN on their new television deal this season and promising them (laughs) uh, television rights to a postseason structure that does not exist right now. Uh, So how do the two parties agree to that? And then, of course, building the framework and preparing for expansion Mm -hmm. uh, in the next CBA. Those are the two points. These are not things that I would like to see change. Those are just two points that I'm going to be paying most attention to. Are there any other points other than service time that you're going to be paying attention to to see how it unfolds? Well, you mentioned um, you know postseason expansion, and I think that goes in that goes hand in hand with universal DH. Um, th- those are kind of two things, topics where we've talked about it. Where I'm just you know, enjoying the current situation for as long as possible. Like I understand pitchers really shouldn't hit. There's not a whole lot of value there, but I I enjoy the weirdness that the sport has leagues with different rules that completely change how rosters are built. Uh, nobody would design a league that way. So the fact that it exists, I enjoy it. I enjoy the accidental weirdness of the whole thing. And then, you know, we just, to, to go back to an earlier question about postseason expansion, like I'm, I'm not really for it. I don't like it. Um, I don't like anything that devalues the regular season, especially when you see like a regular season in a couple divisions, especially the NL West this year played so well that, you know, elevates the regular season above every other sport. I, I wish, you know, uh, I hope baseball, I think baseball can expand the postseason if they go to um, 32 teams. I think there's a way to do that in a sensible way. But with 30 teams, it still strikes me as like five is probably the perfect amount. Um, yeah, I, I like the wild card game. Like I, I like the reward for winning the division, especially since as we see now with the Red Sox and Dodgers in the, um, in the, in the championship series, that that's a case where it is a, punishment it is an obstacle but they can be overcome so um it, it's a way where uh, it's it, to me it's fair like a, a team gets rewarded a team gets punished or a team gets an obstacle a hurdle it has to clear but it's clearable and that's i think pretty nice our next question comes from mark hope and mark wrote to us are we any more confident in the white Sox ability to add the talent needed to get this team where it needs to be there's been a whole lot of moves in the last two years that haven't added much. Dallas Keuchel, Adam Eaton, Cesar Hernandez, Craig Kimbrell, <laughs> Encarnacion, uh, Edwin. Immediately, uh, Liam Hendricks and Ryan Tapera were nice ads, but not consistent contributors due to their roles as relievers. Yasmani Grandal has largely worked out, but leaves a lot to be desired defensively. Well, uh I think, you know, for one, I would quibble with Keuchel. Like, he added a lot last year in, in 2020. Like, he it was a Cy Young. Uh, you got Cy Young support. So, he added a lot that year. Like, that's, I think you, you take him away from, like, Adam Eaton. You don't compare him to Adam Eaton, uh, Cesar Hernandez, Craig Kimbrell, et cetera. Like, he's in a, they, they, they paid more and they got more. Like, they, they probably aren't getting the second year they envisioned, but they got the first year they envisioned. So, I think... Uh, that's a case where I would pull him out of that list. And, and with Grandal too, like he leaves a lot to be desired defensively, but you know, when you look at what he did offensively and you, and you look at what he did around that knee injury and how, you know, much worse it could have been like 
that was a great season. And I think, you know, with Grandal, you know, there's, there's the idea that when it comes to, I think it's a Bill James quote that it's a, a characteristic of poor front offices to worry about the secondary characteristics of their best players. And I think that's something to keep in mind with Grandal. Like Grandal is uh, valuable because he's great for a catcher, um, you know, as a hitter, like, uh, you know, 157 OPS plus, I believe. So, you know, that's something you don't get from that position. And he's a good framer. You know, he has some weaknesses defensively, but you don't let those weaknesses, like talk about moving him out from behind the plates or, you know, having James McCann override him. Like you ride, you know, you, you ride his strengths and then you figure out how to supplement his weaknesses. And that's a case like with, you know, backup catcher. That's a, a place where the White Sox, I think, can add value. Um, like I'm thinking, you know, when he talked about that last year and we, I think a lot of people, most White Sox fans, I would say, we both wanted the White Sox to add a proven veteran catcher. Um, you know, we talked about it a lot, um, you know, and probably disproportionately given just how, uh, I guess, um, you know, how infrequently that position plays. But Kurt Casale was my favorite of that group of backup catchers who aren't going to break the bank, you know, make a couple million a year uh, for one year and you see what they do. Do you know what the uh, Giants record with Casale was behind the plate as a starter? I don't know. 42 and 13. What? Yes. <laughs> 42 and 13 with Casale behind the plate. And that's not to say that the White Sox would have been 32, 42 and 13 if he were on the, uh, if he were on the White Sox. Um, that, that's a case where just like, um, you know, it was, a, he was a, he rode the coattails or, or went along for the ride on a very good team, very well-rounded team. But I think that he's somebody you have in mind is somebody just like, he's an okay hitter as a catcher, as a backup catcher, and he's a good handler of pitchers and, and receives well enough and does enough things well to where you don't mind him playing. Like you don't mind seeing him once or twice a week, the way we very much minded seeing Collins and Zavala behind the plate. Like they just proved untenable. And so that's a, that's a case where, you know, you can bring in a backup catcher uh, who pitchers like throwing to, and that solves basically, you know, that alleviates at least a lot of Grandal's weaknesses to where you don't have to worry about him. So I think when it comes to the players they've added, you, you, you want to you know, hold them accountable and say like, you know, that they, they should be putting up a, a good effort, but they're going to have flaws. And it's just a matter of, you know, good roster construction to cover up those flaws elsewhere. If they add so much as a, as a player, like the way Grandal does. So that's a case where, you know, when it comes to the, the big additions that you don't want to discourage them from saying like, from, it's from, spending and adding a top of market player like they did with Grandal, who has delivered as expected offensively. And, you know, it's a mixed bag defensively, but enough to where like you feel okay about him going into year three. So I feel okay about the White Sox spending the kind of money uh, if they spend. Like I'm thinking like with Dallas Keuchel, they wanted Zach Wheeler first. He's been great with Philadelphia. Like that would have been money well spent if the, if Wheeler took the White Sox money. Um, so it seems like they're fine when they want to spend. Liam Hendricks is fine for what they spent. It was just kind of a bad idea based on how much work they needed to do with the rest of their roster. But when they spend the money, they usually get what they what they spend. So that's a case where I'm still very suspicious of what the White Sox will do with the second and third tiers. That's why I'm curious to see what happens with pitchers and Ethan Katz, whether that changes anything. But when it comes to like second tier uh you know, seven figure salaries for position players. That's, I think, where, you know, Rick Hahn still has to earn the benefit of the doubt. 
Our next question is a, is a joint question as uh, Terrence and Philip from South Park. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Terrence wrote to us. I didn't even think of that. Uh, yeah, Terrence wrote to us, as there appears to be no high-impact prospects on the horizon and that our team has flamed out early in the playoffs for a second year in a row, and given the spot that our front office has uh, in making trades to improve this team, do you think that the White Sox front office has it in them to get this team into the World Series? And this question from Phillip, the White Sox clearly are a second-tier team in Major League Baseball pecking order, do you feel one offseason is enough to make the White Sox a true contender? Uh, I would take the optimistic course in both of these questions. I think they're kind of, um, you know, I guess, and you know, for very valid reasons, being a White Sox fan, you know, it's natural to take the pessimistic route. But I think with the, where the White Sox are with attendance, um, rising with season ticket base growing uh, with TV ratings um, shooting through the roof, especially relative to what the rest of, uh, you know, a lot of teams are struggling with TV ratings. Like this is a time to be optimistic. This is also a time where the White Sox should be spending. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, this is more than wish casting when it comes to expecting the White Sox to um, make some big additions or at least, you know, one big addition that's not Liam Hendricks or a closer that has a, um, you know, a ceiling on his earnings. This is a case where the White Sox can make at least one big move because everything's there. Like, you know, they, they might have been able to do that last year, but with the pandemic and such, just like you could understand it didn't make a whole lot of sense i think it's kind of um you know uh penny wise dollar stupid <laughs> to you know uh limit yourself like that when you know this payoff is eventually coming with the attendance and tv ratings but at least you, you get it if if you're in like jerry reinsdorf's mo of like breaking even in a given season like not wanting to lose money you'll give you and we can talk about whether it's losing money but you can under, at least understand like a stance that leads to a team to not spend after a pandemic season the way we'd like them to spend. But this is the year, having seen the excitement and having seen that this could very much be a White Sox city um, uh, with the way the Cubs are retrenching, that this would be the time to do it. So I would take an optimistic stance that like everything has lined up the way it hasn't in so many years to add. And, and that's why I think like there's a matter of they should be spending a lot more than they have in previous years. And the off-season plan project uh, salary limit should be a lot higher. I think there's a justification in doing so. So yeah, I think it's a case where you should feel like they can make the moves. I think they've done the hard part in getting like a 26 man roster. That's pretty much stable through the first 20 spots. Now it's just a matter of um, either tweaking to improve one of those 20 spots or, you know, multiples of those 20 spots or, you know, just adding to that somehow. But either way, like they've done the hard work of, of getting that stable, top 20, top 23, what have you. So that's the hard part. This is not, this is make it like the easy part. I think they're tough decisions, but they're fascinating, tough decisions. They're not, um, they're not grueling. They're not tough decisions that make it harder to watch or impossible to watch. <laughs> it makes it fun, it makes it more fun to follow. So, uh, and then when you look at like this postseason, and we look at like the, the regular season where the Giants were projected to win 75 and they won 107, and you see what the Red Sox have done with an 80 and 82 um, Pocota projection. Like, 
yeah, one off season is plenty. Like for a team in the position where the White Sox are, um, they have pitching, they have enough offense. I think the shape of their offense is what needs work. They have a lot of same players, and I think they need to diversify a little bit. But they have talent. They have production. Just a matter of optimizing that production. You can question whether you know Tony La Russa is the guy to optimize that production, but you know that's a case with a lot of managers. But either way, like the talent is there. Uh, so I would take a relatively optimistic approach and just the work remaining. You can give Rick Hahn, uh, you can be very skeptical that his front office can evaluate the proper talent, but they should be spending the money and, and having the resources to trade so forth if they want to do like a, you know, like we, the trades we talked about earlier, like the Brian Reynolds type move. They should be able to add talent, good talent one way or another, with the resources they have. So if they don't, I will be writing many a posts about how uh, much of a failure that is or just missed opportunity to capitalize on all the hard work and all the sacrifices of the you know three to four years of just like, you know, foregoing things on purpose. But until, you know, it gets to that point, I'm going to maintain like positive reinforcement that they deserve this treat. <laughs> Everybody deserves this treat for um, all the losing on purpose. And sure, it's been you know two short postseason. Yeah, and, and I think the 2020 postseason is its own animal. That was just a weird season altogether. It's like to me, it's like one and a half postseasons, not two. I think the the 2021 postseason, this ALDS, was the indicative postseason, the one that you can apply lessons to going forward. I think 2020 was so weird in so many ways that I wouldn't let that color what the 2021 postseason did or didn't do. So the question that I have, and let's pull back the curtain. We can have this conversation in front of our podcast listeners, because when it comes to the White Sox front office and how they're going to be covered this upcoming off season, I have a feeling in Chicago from the sports media channels radio, print, television, that they're going to try to turn up the heat on Rick Hahn and this White Sox front office to be better. I, I can't simplify it any more than that. Uh, that the White Sox have to make big, bold moves because the White Sox have to take advantage of this contention window because so far... All they have is two playoff wins. That's it. Not a playoff series win. They have two playoff wins after the rebuild. And for many in Chicago and many White Sox fans, that's not good enough uh, going into next season. So when do those, let's say, critical pieces come out? How patient should everyone that watches and covers the White Sox be with this front office during this upcoming offseason. Because from my perspective, I would say be patient all the way to opening day. <laughs> and if you don't like the opening day roster, well, we know Rick Hahn and the White Sox front office are not afraid to make b big, bold moves uh, before the end of July as far as the trade deadline. Uh, so maybe that will happen uh, in July. But when is that period where, okay, there's something, you know, the White Sox front office is not living up to expectations. 
I think the CBA could, you know, kind of throw a wrench in trying to predict what time that is because I don't think it'll be the normal flow of an off season. But I think um, you know it from previous off seasons, like the Todd Frazier, Brett Laurie postseason or uh, off season, to where like they made the one big move, but then just didn't add. Like this isn't enough, and sure enough, it wasn't enough at all. Uh, came tumbling down, and uh, you know, just I, I think the. Um, yeah, they, they make big, bold moves during the regular season. That's partially because they don't make the sufficient moves during the winter. So they kind of have to scramble and, and, and try to um, make an authoritative move to bolster what they didn't do in the, uh, during the regular season. So that's why I think that's, um, if they do more work in the, if they make, if they make the big, bold move in the winter uh, or moves, uh, what have you. I think that's a case where, um, you know, they won't need to make that midsummer move. But I think that's, a, you know, the way you phrase it from the Chicago media is like, that's the negative reinforcement. Like, I think you look at it both ways. You can kind of be good cop, bad cop with it. You can say that, um, you know, it is, you know, they've had this rebuilding process and they only have two post season wins to sh- uh, show for it. That's true. But like, as I mentioned, you know, they had the pandemic year. That was weird that no fans were in the stands. They didn't get that boost the way that rebuilding teams do from having the excitement to actually show up to the park and have all the revenue come in that way. So uh, that's why this is like the first year where this is normal. And you can actually uh, count on having like a much higher attendance next year with the season ticket base being there. So that's a case where you can, you know, say like, okay, this off season is different from the other. So I think you know, I do it a good cop, bad cop way to where you can say like, haven't done anything yet, but there's also like reasons why they haven't done anything until now. So that's why I think that's how I'm going to spin it. And so I would say opening day is too long. I think probably by, you know, February or I guess like when the names come off the board, whatever rhythm it takes, like if, if they're on the outside looking at the game of musical chairs with certain talent and the White Sox end up standing <laughs> just because they weren't able to complete that move that needed to be done, you can generally sense it uh, when the White Sox haven't done enough. So that's a case where trust your gut, but don't let, I guess, your gut color uh, your outlook because I think there's enough reason to think the White Sox can actually do things they haven't done in previous winters. Maybe I'm foolish for saying so, but I think uh, there's, I, I think you give them some leeway to get it done just so you can be angrier if they don't. You can say, we were nice about this. <laughs> and look what happened. You betrayed our trust. So <laughs> if you want to be bitter, if that's like your default, if you just rather guard yourself, just say like, just imagine how bitter you can be if nothing happens. So save it for now and explode later. There you go. That's a good strategy. But that's just how people are going to talk about the White Sox this offseason. There's us. There's many people who talk about this team now, Jim. And that is the spectrum. You're, you're, you're choosing to be you know, the positive reinforcement. I am already living in the city hearing the negative <laughs> reinforcement uh, about the White Sox. And we're not even in November yet. Uh my feeling about the whole thing is that I think this team as of right now is good enough to win the American league central in 2022. Yes. There are a couple of moves that they can make as far as the roster to improve their chances of winning the American league pennant. But if the white Sox are going to win the American league pennant in 2022, if they're going to make the world series, the players that are already on this team 
have to make some adjustments to be better. Uh, even if you brought in a Marcus Simeon, if Aloy Jimenez has a 55 plus percent ground ball rate, that's not going to help. If the White Sox starting pitchers cannot throw any of their breaking pitches, any the, any pitches with spin consistently for strikes or to increase as far as their whiff rate on those pitches, uh, they are still going to face the same struggles as we have seen these two past postseasons against Houston and against Oakland. Uh, those are the those are the two big items going to 2022 is going to be offensively the ground ball rate for the White Sox and for White Sox pitchers how effective their breaking pitches are from the lessons that we have learned from 2021. It'd be awesome if the White Sox brought in a Marcus Simeon to add into this lineup or another veteran starting pitcher, you know, along the same lines of of Lance Lynn. Uh, Because that trade worked out great for the White Sox. But if the 2022 White Sox are going to go further than they have these past two seasons, it's going to be on the backs of these guys on the foundation pieces that they already have getting better. And and that's that's how I feel about this upcoming offseason. And I don't know. I don't think there's anything that Rick Hahn can do, Jim, to make his foundation better. That's really up to those guys and the coaching staff. And unless Rick Hahn is having second thoughts about Tony DeRusa and the coaches that he has down in the dugout, uh, I, I feel very much that 2022 is just going to be the status quo and it's going to be bringing back the 2021 squad. And yeah, I could see some Sox fans being disappointed with that thought. In summary, ball in air. Ball in air. Yes. Yes. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. Uh, Again, that will conclude as far as the podcast version in 2021 of P.O. Sox as we did this mega mailbag show. Uh, Moving forward, Jim is still going to be collecting your P.O. Sox questions, especially from our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash machine and Jim will be answering those questions. You're planning to do this weekly, right? Yes, probably Monday afternoons. All right, so that's what you can look forward to upcoming Monday afternoons on SoxMachine.com. Jim will be answering your guys' P.O. Sox questions uh, in written format. We will be bringing back P.O. Sox for spring training when we get into spring 2022 as we start ramping up for the 2022 season. But I really appreciate everyone, especially our Patreon supporters, for constantly bringing up great topics, great questions for this segment. It is our favorite because we love what you guys bring to the table and you make us think about different avenues and have different types of conversations regarding the Chicago White Sox or baseball in general. So thank you guys so much for an excellent season of P.O. Sox. And if you are not a Patreon supporter uh, and you do have questions and topics that you would like us to answer, uh, either in future writings from Jim on SoxMachine.com or next spring for this podcast, Sign up today at patreon.com slash socks machine, where we have several different tiers of support. 
We also have annual subscriptions as well that save you 9% off from the monthly subscriptions. Um, but our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website, and they get the first opportunity to purchase any new Sox Machine swag, like our ball caps that we've had, our pint glasses, the Sox Machine hoodie as fall has finally got to Chicago as far as temperatures uh, now being in the 50s, which is great for that Sox Machine hoodie that everybody loves so much. So if you enjoy your work and you want more, go to patreon.com slash to sign up today. And that will conclude this mega special edition of the Sox Machine podcast uh, with a very large P.O. Sox segment. And really, again, really appreciate everybody submitting questions and topics for this episode. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. We also have a YouTube page, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash socks machine. So definitely do that as we're over 500 subscribers now on YouTube. So thank you everyone for doing that. And the Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com. your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.